This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Zupan's is the place to go get what's now in season Columbia River King Salmon. We all know that's the best the Northwest has to offer, and it's in stock now, and it's on sale this week. I don't know when you're listening to this, but go in and get it anyway. If you if you happen to be listening the week it's in sale, it's a nice bonus. Very nice. Yeah, in fact, uh, through September 13th, some other things on sale include Zupan's Korean Barbecue Flankin' Ribs, Double R Ranch Bonin' Rib Steak, and Organic Seed Grape. So whatever is in season, you can count on your local Zupan's to bringing it to you fresh and oftentimes, you know, with a very special sale. Well, yes. And listen, if you're like me and you don't like to have everything strewn all over the kitchen when you're just cooking for one or two, they have five ingredient recipes. And it's funny because I was just talking to my girlfriend, Renee, about that the other day. I'm good to a certain point, And then when it becomes a lot of a lot of ingredients, then that means more stuff to clean up. Five ingredient recipes uh, at Zupans.com. And it's never too early to start thinking about celebrating the holidays and letting Zupan's markets do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, in fact, right now you can celebrate the high holidays with ready-to-eat offerings coming up if you celebrate Rosh Hashanah. If you do, or even if you don't, there's you can celebrate too. So Some great meals there, yeah. Right. And so let's don't forget also to go to Zupans.com and give them a national some national recognition. You can vote for them for best produce in the country and best prepared foods in the country. I believe they deserve your vote. Yeah, they've made it super easy. If you go to the website, as Chris mentioned, Zupans.com right at the top, the USA Today Readers Choice Awards. I believe you can vote through this coming Monday, the, the 11th of September. So hop on it early. Don't delay. Go there and vote. I think there's good karma coming your way if you do that. Yes. Right? Who else are you sure. going to do that for? Mm-hmm. Do it for someone local. We're always talking about local. Zupans is local and has been local for many decades, um, and they're, they're still going strong. Yep. Three locations to serve you, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Oswego. And, of course, we always recommend people go to what website? Zupans.com. We've recommend always we've recommended it three times in this little commercial. Yeah, we have. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. Hello, Court. Good uh, Good morning. Afternoon. Is it? What is it? It's, it's late morning. morning. Yeah. Hello. So, uh, hello, and we've got, you know... Oh, we're not doing weather reports. Yeah, we are. Go ahead. We've got what? Well, we've got some sun gleaming in. I mean, it is September. This is a good time of year mm-hmm. in this neck of the woods. And you're in a different neck of the woods. How was it down there? It's been uh, pretty good. We're actually, uh, from what I've been told, is September, October is when it actually really gets hot in the city. Typically, the San Francisco is you know, not as hot as the other areas of the Bay, but September, October is when it heats up a little bit. Oh. Well, when they say heat, we're not talking about Midwestern kind of no, heat. No, no, no. I think it's like into the 80s, and there's some there's a little bit of humidity associated with it. I got lucky, and I didn't even intend for this, but I ended up in a place that's got air conditioning. I have yet to turn it on all summer, um, but uh, I've been told that I may have to do it 
here in the next couple of weeks. Oh, it's not going to kill you. No, I know. I'll be all right. I want to <laughs> see if I can go without. Yeah, well, go, go without as long as you can. It's yeah. always nice to do that. I don't have AC where I am, but I've lived here for in this environment for a long time, and I think I've needed it maybe two or three days in the span of 10 years. Yeah, so. which, is, which is not worth in the install in any way. No, no, no. Open a all. window. Yeah, no, it's all it's all good. I'm happy with it. So yeah. at any rate, um, I wonder what our guest Ricky Bella would have to say about that. You know, he probably he grew up in the um, in the 90s in, in Portland, and they probably didn't have much air conditioning anywhere. Didn't need it. Was, it. Yeah, now now I think it's impossible to do without it. Isn't that interesting how mm-hmm. that happens? In a in a short amount of time where that changed, I mean. You know, I moved to Portland after you did, and I was told, ah, you don't need AC, you know, maybe for a week, maybe two. And literally the week we moved in, it was a, it was a, you know, 110 degree week in Portland, and we instantly regretted not having an AC in the house. Well, I remember the week I moved in, we had these big windows in this house, and it was July, and it was a nightmare, and mm-hmm. I hadn't yet figured out how to. Regulate the AC with yeah. timing. Turn it on at six in the morning. Freeze the house as much as you could. I later learned that. Close but the blinds rate, if you can. That's, that's all. Neither here nor there. Let's talk about another subject. Your San Francisco Giants. Now I'm referring to them as yours. Mm-hmm. Are completely playing themselves out of the playoffs. And that's yeah, they are. I I know that they were kind of on the cusp, but the last I've uh, been seeing is they if they continue what they're doing right now, they're not going to be playing at all in October. Yeah, well, some some teams aren't. But I segue into our interview because we've got a guest who grew up in Portland who surprisingly is a baseball fan. Because you don't find a lot of baseball fans who grew up in Portland. It wasn't really a big thing, right? You had your Mariners nearby. But there was, no, there was a AAA, but the thing was the Blazers and later soccer and the Ducks and the Beavers yeah. and, and football. And so... Most of the people, I, when I moved here, I was shocked that, you know, people didn't weren't following baseball at all. Ricky is. He's an Atlanta Braves fan. Mm. And, I, you know, I don't know how that happened. He tries to explain it, but I don't think there's a good explanation here. <laughs> so, TBS. It was uh, TBS that uh, probably did it for him. Yeah. Wasn't, well, wasn't I, won't, the- I went through the story, I believe, about my mother and the Atlanta Braves. So that's there. Yeah. And, you know, years ago, you didn't have the options you had now. Yeah, um, no. I think all- for a lot of people, the the Braves and the Cubs became pretty big because you had these super stations that were broadcasting games, TBS, and I think it was WGN GN for for the Cubs. So I think that they probably have a lot of more fans outside of you know their their metro area than they should be, should have. Well, yeah, and they would have had to stick with it. But you know, I now we get we have the MLB TV app, and it's fantastic until yeah. until for me. The Mariners are playing the Mets, and then I have to. Oh my oh, God! I have to wait till three hours after the game yeah, to actually the watch it. Of course. So, but I point out in this, you know, how we're pretty spoiled nowadays because you know my mom was a Mets fan, and she had to drop her fandom because she couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. So and and adopt a new team anyway. That you know, I guess it's a little bit analogous to uh, restaurants nowadays. We've had a lot of our big well-known chefs that for years made up our food scene have left and now 
uh, chefs and cooks have to adopt new teams. And in this case, um, we've got Ricky, who's, you know, started at a lot of Vitali Paley's restaurants. And, you know, his guy was Ben Bettinger, who's now at Laurelhurst Market and um, along the way. And, you know, worked with uh, Dougie Adams at Imperial. And now he finds himself in his first position where he's making all the decisions at Palomar. So it is a little bit analogous to changing teams. A lot of people have changed teams over the last couple of years. No, that's exactly right, Chris. As a guy who came to Portland and decided to be a Trailblazers fan, it wasn't long until I decided, nah, I'm still a Utah Jazz fan, so... You do what it's you have to do. It's hard to get that stuff out of your system. I you think can't. I, I thought about becoming a Mariners fan when I moved out here. It mm-hmm. just can't, it can't happen. I mean, yep. anyway, we're not talking about sports. Somehow we got into that, and that's my fault, listeners. <laughs> By the way, listeners, thank you for being with us. Yep. If you can forgive us, then you, maybe you'll click subscribe and share this podcast with your friends, all Ricky's friends. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, welcome. Yep. Thank you for listening. We have almost 10 years of archives where you're you can look up a lot of the guys we talk a lot of people that we talk about in this podcast um i don't think we have one with the woman who got ricky started at the coffee shop but we do have them with ben bettinger and doug adams and of course vitaly paley a lot of the people he references you can go back and really really get a deeper feel for this particular story uh through our archives so and someday ricky's going to be in our archives after the first few weeks so that's cool i really enjoyed this interview with ricky bella i didn't know him beforehand i'd heard a lot about him and um you know he's pretty much half my age and what I find interesting is how his perspective was he would talk about things about his entire life and I would just think, man, that's like a smaller segment than when I've even lived in Portland. So um, he's got a big career in front of him and he really likes the business and it sounds like he's really good at it where he is running the show at Palomar right now. So I'm... um, I really enjoyed his perspectives on the business and what has happened over the past few years and what's happened in the industry and what it takes to be um, to advance in the business. Um, it was a really interesting perspective. And then we talked about, you know, the future, too. So everybody's got a future. They don't know where it's going to be. That's what we've learned in the last couple of years. Yeah. So this interview with Ricky Bella is uh, is a favorite. I liked it, and I hope everybody else does, too. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark Restaurant. 
Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. So, wait a minute. That now that I, I notice you're wearing an Atlanta Braves hat. Oh yeah. Okay. How did you become an Atlanta Braves fan? Um, you know, honestly, I think that as a young kid, my dad was just like a bandwagon Braves fan because it was like the '90s and they were the team of the decade. I was gonna. My mom sort of jumped on that bandwagon. We were both Met fans. I'm still a big Met fan. So. Oh, so you jumped right? You jumped to the rival, the NL. Oh, I didn't jump, man. I was there. <laughs> I was there in nine year. This is way too early for you, but I was there. Game five, 1969, World Series at Chase Stadium, watching the game. So, no, That's I've been a crazy. fan. I've been a fan for a long time. My mom's a different story. But we're not here to discuss her. We're to discuss. <laughs> so it's it's actually interesting um, base for a conversation because you told me that you are from Portland, and I don't know a lot of Oregonians or Portlanders who start out being baseball fans. It's not a baseball market. It's not, and we've had that like MLB to baseball movement for years now, and it's seemingly gained and lost traction and it just i yeah i don't i don't have a lot of faith that it'll ever come to fruition but right but just the fact that you give a shit is a big thing because i've grown you know when when i moved out here in 05 all i could find was oregon ducks fans and blazer fans there was yep yep it's ducks and beavers mania and then it's just the blazers and now recently you have like soccer fans but growing up there wasn't no it was just blazers or bust but right. like i said i grew up in the 90s and the braves were they were pretty cool i mean man there was it was some of the coolest stuff to ever happen in baseball was that that 90s dynasty stretch and i just i think that's why i got hooked well yeah but you were that it was a different world then right so now you can have an mlb.tv package and oh watch right them from anywhere then <laughs> anywhere you couldn't. So that's the quick story on my mom. She would not move out of Connecticut unless my they could find a cable system that had WR, which was the Met station. No way. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And so they did move to a place in Savannah. And then a year later, they took away the um, Met's WOR in no. favor of a fifth religious station oh no bait and switch <laughs> and my mom got so pissed and she i actually wrote this little story on facebook today because a lot of met fans are pissed off that there's friday night baseball on apple tv and i said just chill out my mom had to take a petition around to all the neighbors in savannah georgia to try to get wr back they didn't give a shit about new york mets baseball so therefore to your point she had no choice. She was a baseball fan. She started, okay, I'll watch the Braves a little bit and see what happens. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I mean, that's when Glavin was there and John Smoltz. And uh, now Chipper wasn't there yet. 
but David Justice and the guys you're talking about, and then Maddox came a couple of years later. All right, yep. now that we've lost half our audience because we're talking <laughs> baseball here. Um, but yes, it's it's nice to see a baseball fan, regardless of what team you're rooting for. And you're Listen, gonna you're having a good it. year, my friend. Oh man, like we got the MVP, and we're gonna we're gonna win it all, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but we got the MVP's brother. So let's see what happens. There. <laughs> <laughs> okay, brother. So let's talk. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and how you got to where you are. So, in the '90s, you were just a young lad, correct? You were pretty. I was, I was born in 1990. You were born in 1990. Okay, that's right. So that, by my math, that would make you 33 now or 32, about to turn 33. 33, it is. All right, good for you. So um, you grew. So your childhood was happening before there was really a food scene in Portland, right? That what, what is your memory of food in Portland? Regardless of, I'm not talking about fine dining, of course. But what do you remember in the, the Portland market when you were a kid? Uh, as far as when I'm a man, as a kid, I remember Pietro's Pizza on Lombard and Peninsula. Uh, I think there's like a, a new zebra, there, a green zebra now or something, but that was a iconic North Portland restaurant and one of the last Pietro's Pizzas. There's like, what, two more now? I don't know. Um, I have no idea. And what was your impression? You've never been to, of, you, no, you've never never been been to Pietro's, Pietro's Pizza? No, oh, man. but what's your impression of Pietro's versus all the pizza places in Portland now? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's not a better slice of pizza on the planet than a Pizza Shoals, but Pietro's had Duke Nukem, or no, uh, Metal Slug, and a bunch of arcade games and a salad bar that you could eat all the croutons out of. So it was a close second. Yeah, well, that has nothing to do with crust or, or <laughs> ingredients, but okay. Sometimes we'll that, sometimes that's sometimes that's not the important part. But sometimes that's what you would expect. That's what I would expect from someone from Portland to describe their childhood pizza. That would be the, you know, that would be the thing, right? Because you didn't know any better then no, than I, than I, the arcade games. Arcade games, and there was like pepperoncinis in the salad bar. You can get a whole bowl. That's what I cared about. That was it. All right. So did you, what did your uh, parents do? Did you get out to eat much when you were younger? Um, we would, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. The right across from that Pietro's is a spot called King Burrito, which is still there to this day and some of the best Mexican food in town for my money. That we went to King Burrito a lot. We went to fast food a lot, to be honest. There was a lot of Taco Bell, McDonald's and you know, we we were never a really well-off family, so it wasn't like, you know, going to uh, my birthday restaurant every year, no matter what. I didn't care what else was going on. We went to Chang's Mongolian Grill. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with that? I do, yes, out there on the east side. Yeah, they got, uh, they got the big raw bar with all the meat and seafood and noodles and vegetables, and you bring them up, and they got the big flat top that they cook them on. And that was like relatively inexpensive because it was all you could eat. So mm-hmm. when your twelve-year-old son has his birthday party there and he wants to eat himself stupid, you go to Chang's and you're gonna be fine. That's a good idea. All right, so that begs the question: How you got into food? 
and how you got into restaurants. So what was your first, you know, how did you decide, was it just getting a job at first or is it something you were really interested in? No, it was absolutely just getting a job. It was uh, almost accidentally getting a job. I had a coffee shop that we'd all hang out at and one of my buddies got hired there as a dishwasher just because we were always loitering around. And uh, Loitering's a good word. Oh, yeah. And that's all we did. At this point, I had dropped out of high school. We didn't have any... We didn't go to school. We didn't have any responsibilities. We would all scrounge up enough money to get... Each of us get a cup of coffee. And the owner's really nice, so they let us have free refills as long as we wanted. So, like, four or five of us, each getting one cup of coffee, we'd sit outside that coffee shop for five, six hours. And That's just a bad business and, plan. You know, it probably wasn't the greatest business plan, but I... I'm oh, I meant for the, I'm I meant for the, let us. for the coffee shop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm glad that they were fine with losing their money on their drip because man, we were drinking it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of my buddies got, uh, he got canned too many times showing up hungover too many times being late for work. And I was just like sitting on the couch next to him. And so they, they let him go and then just like looked over at me. We're like, so you want to wash dishes? And I was like, all right, sure, cool. Sure, that seems like a career to me. I'll be right I was there. Like, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds like the next 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how long, let's talk a little bit about the trajectory from dishwashing soap to actual cooking. Um, so the dishwashing at that coffee shop, so that was called the James John Cafe, and that was like, my that was that was my home for a long time that was where i grew up and that was uh suzanne bozarth one of my mentors had came from paley's place and opened that coffee shop so it was very food forward for a coffee shop she did all the all the all the baking and pastries in-house every morning they had these crazy sandwiches the james john grinder was absurd it like tosso ham Sliced turkey, roasted red peppers, and house. This house made aioli at a time when I didn't know what the hell aioli was. And she had to explain to me, it's pretty much mayonnaise. And I was like, well, why don't you call it mayonnaise then? She's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, don't, don't worry about it because I came from Paley's place. It's not going to yeah. be called mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah, we're not calling it mayonnaise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was just, it was lots of food and lots of like in house stuff. She wasn't uh, like buying, buying stuff out of a can and selling it. You know what I mean? Um, so I was just washing dishes there and seeing all this cool food stuff going on and asking questions and one thing led to another. So, and then how did you, was, was Paley's place next? No. So Paley's place was actually a while from that. So at the James John cafe, um, Benny, Benny Bettinger started doing these supper clubs there. Uh, cause he had left Paley's place to open a restaurant called Beaker and Flask. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I've got the coasters from Beaker and yeah, Flask. Yeah, I have one somewhere. Is it the one with the dates the, that are crossed off? Right, the paper the, the coasters, plan? right. Yeah. I don't know exactly. I'm the same thing. It's somewhere. I've, I, I've seen it in the last couple of years. I haven't seen mine last couple of years. I got a, I a bad feeling I lost it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Benny um, and Kevin Ludwig, that was their joint. And uh, yeah. there's a lot I remember about that. That, that kind of... 
marks for me the beginning of when I started Portland Food Adventures. That was when I, about the time when that opened that I thought, wow, this all is really cool. I mean, that time, that was, that was a special time. That was like really the kind of the big bang mm-hmm. of, of restaurants that weren't Paley's Place, Wildwood and Higgins. And you know, here's a bar that was getting at the top. I think I could be wrong, but a bar that was getting recognition from Eater. It, this was not a restaurant. This was a bar. We got restaurant of the year. I know. That's yeah. And it was probably <laughs> and the place was called Beak. The place was called Beaker and Flask. We exactly. Got of the so year. that was. I think that was a um, harbinger of things to come in Portland, where you didn't have to be a traditional restaurant to to do really well. And of course, Benny wasn't. You know, didn't have anything to do with with drinks he was the food guy who made it sing yep and that was you know that was almost by accident it's i don't think that like winning restaurant of the year six months into the operation was the goal i think that would have been a pretty uh that would have been a pretty lofty goal but Mm -hmm. it turned it turned into that you know it was you know we didn't have a sign i don't know if you remember or not but that was like the whole thing Everyone would talk about, oh, yeah, Beaker and Flask, it's this restaurant, it doesn't have a sign. Like, it almost made it, like, more cool and, like, in, like, you had to know where you were going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know if I remember that it didn't have a sign, but I probably did then. There's a lot I don't remember. It was but- insane how many people would bring it up coming into the restaurant. And then on our one-year anniversary, and I saw a picture of this somewhere, we threw a, a, a one-year Beaker and Flask birthday party. And we all got hammered, and we all got stencils and spray paint. And me and Benny and Kevin Ludwig and Mike Shea and all those guys spray painted with stencils, beaker and flask outside the door, almost like as a joke. Like, look, mm-hmm. guys, we fi- we finally got a sign. Uh, and it looked like crap. And the next morning, Ludwig had it painted over again. <laughs> the next morning, he didn't wait any longer. Than no, that, no, it was gone. I, I have pictures of it, but you would never know other than that. Oh, very cool. We did have him. Well, we've had both Kevin and Ben on the podcast. And I know Kevin talked about the early days of Beaker and Flask. And I haven't listened to that in a long time either. That's been ages. So are you in touch with Kevin? Oh, I run into him every once in a while. We're still super friendly. He's still I still call him Hefe when I see him. He uh, he popped in and was working a few shifts a while at Bithouse Saloon with me when I was the chef there. Uh, and that was crazy. That was kind of like a full circle thing. I started working for Luds when I was like 19 years old, I think, as a okay. dishwasher. So it was cool, cool to have him bartending. For you, that's like half your life ago. Or yeah, yeah you, That's more, less, more than half your life ago. And um, for me, that's just a little piece. So uh, it's yeah, like almost, for sure. It's like seventy five percent of my Portland life. Put it that way. So yeah, and it's like one hundred percent of my adult life. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, that is very cool. I didn't know that was in your past. And um, yeah, yeah. So and there's so was there uh, a connection between the coffee shop and I don't remember the name of the woman you were talking about. Should have written it down. Between her and Benny and Paley's place, or oh yeah, so no, so she was um, the bar manager at Paley's place Mm -hmm. when Benny was the chef there. Um, So they were all really, really, really tight. I mean, we were all at 
at Benny's wedding together. Um, and she left Paley's place to open up her coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And Benny, a little while later, I don't, I don't know how long I was a young kid and I wasn't paying too much attention to this stuff, but after a while, Benny had left Paley's to open Beaker and Flask, but as you remember, Beaker and Flask got Beaker got delayed. I think like two full years, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. Then it got kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And and Benny had already, you know, had his big swan song, beautiful goodbye at Paley's place and all That's the flowers right. and stuff. He so was in limbo. He was a little bit limbo he, there. He was in limbo for a few years. I think he ended up. Oh man, where else was he? Downtown, connected to a hotel, maybe still around now. Uh, I'm getting old. I'm t- I sort of remember that, but I can't help you. Clay Common. He ended up doing something for a little while at Clay Common. I want to okay. say maybe he like took like some sort of chef or, or chef like position there, sous chef position or something, just to kill the time. But he was doing these supper clubs with his buddy Suzanne, his close friend Suzanne, at, at the coffee shop where mm-hmm. I was washing dishes, and that was my first experience with cooking and like fine dining. You know, not m- muffins and pastries and sandwiches, but like coursed out six course meals that the whole shebang. Do you remember when you first thought, wow, this is something different and this is cool. And I think I could I could get involved with this. So I do. I actually uh, not a shameless plug, but I just started a blog a couple weeks ago um, and I kind of t- told a little bit of this story. So I have a lot of this stuff kind of fresh in my mind. It's been kicking around. Um, What's the name of the blog before you go any further and or we forget? Uh, I don't even know if I've named it yet. It's kind of, uh, well, then where the moment thing. look, look up, uh, my name, Ricky Bella on Substack. Okay. Uh, there's, there's one thing there and I got a, a second one that I'm kind of in the editing process right now. Um, but I, I talk about, I talk about those supper clubs and like just being like a complete fly on the wall, fish out of water, any other animal metaphors that (laughs) that you could think of watching this crazy dinner go down and not knowing what I was seeing and not, not having any context for what they were doing. Um, Growing up eating McDonald's and uh, uh, Hamburger Helper at home, like all of this stuff was, it was like I was on Alien Planet. And uh, I can only imagine having never been out to even, you know, going out on a regular basis to regular restaurants, what it must be like for a kid like you to see customers coming in and paying for six course dinners with wine and this is their experience like you must have thought holy shit what is this and this goes on this happens that was was exactly what i thought it was it was like i had been dropped onto an alien planet i didn't understand anything that i was seeing i didn't understand these people executing the dinner i didn't understand these people coming the guests i didn't understand who these people were or what 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 their regular experiences were like it it, it felt like i was in a a different dimension uh and the food itself was i didn't know that people cared about food like that you know i didn't i didn't know that people would like break down the the balance of acidity and fat and salt on a dish like when i heard them talking about that it was like 
what do you why first of all it's soup or whatever you know like i didn't right and do they do it, this with cheeseburgers yeah exactly <laughs> like i don't know i like mcdonald's french fries a lot and i'm here to do dishes right well that you know really interesting because we've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years and i don't think i've ever delved into that perspective it's very interesting to think i can i can just see where you'd be going what the fuck what is this who are these people and where did they come from yep and why are they saying all these weird fucking words like i don't know what (laughs) these french words mean but what the hell is a brunoise that sounds like some sort of tool (laughs) Um, yeah well that might have been the customers some sort of tools yeah (laughs) yeah right i'm I'm sure there's a few um Yeah. yeah that's that's a part of why I, I, I started this the Substack and started writing these personal essays is I had enough people kind of telling me that, you know, that perspective is missing and that perspective happens a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of high school dropout kids washing dishes and getting thrown into this crazy restaurant world that feels like it's on Jupiter. You know, that's a very common thing. And, and as common as it is, it doesn't really get talked about a lot. So, yeah, I think it's cool. Well, I think it's also cool because, you you know, we've only – we had a short conversation last week. We've, we're 15 minutes into this or a little longer than that. And I can tell you're an articulate person, and I find it interesting when high school dropouts, you know, have a grip on grammar – and you're embarking on writing, which is not something a high school dropout usually does. But I, I think of people like Anthony Bourdain, right? He didn't have yeah. a heavy-duty uh, scholastic education. The guy was a fucking genius and could yeah. write really well and express his thoughts very well. So I'm, I'm interested to hear exactly how you uh, read, exactly how you put this, and what some of your other thoughts are going forward because if you go from beaker and flask to paley's place uh, you've got a pretty incredible perspective on a lot of shit going down in the food world right to go from there to there and then with dougie i guess to bullard which took a couple again there's another one that took a couple of years with a chef out of water yep yep (laughs) um, and and then to go there and see all listen now all of a sudden a guy like Dougie and you're there I know I that's when I first heard of you he was really praising you heavily on social media it was Ricky Bella this and Ricky Bella that he he, <laughs> he just loved you and I never heard of you so that was very cool and that was the first time but then you go through that and now you're in a restaurant. That is, well, it's not Paley's Place, it's not Beaker and Flask. This one is in a hotel that has a shitload of money behind it, and it's got to do well. It's under different, it's got a whole different framework going on. And then next thing you know, Dougie's gone. And then next thing you know, all those restaurants close. All of them. Uh, Well, to be honest, oh, it's fine. If we can't laugh at closed restaurants, then... uh then we got a world of pain coming for us because every restaurant. Well, I don't, eventually. no one's laughing. I'm just saying you've been through, I was kind of amused at how much shit you've been through in a short period of time. And dude, I'm sure you've done this thinking you're only 33. What's what, what can happen in the next 17 years? So I'm sure you've pondered that. A lot of it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, you even, you even skipped a step because there was Imperial in between. Right. That, Paley's and um, Bullard. And that was a 
crazy thing to witness because I got to see Vitaly figure out how to go from a restaurant that was inside a house to running a hotel restaurant with two stories worth of kitchens and a staff of 30 cooks and who knows how many front of house staff and like seeing that transition from a, a, a restaurant that was built out of somebody's house in Northwest to a restaurant that's in a 10 story hotel. That that's was got also partners. A, that's not that's just got, Italian Kimberly's anymore. That's got partners. That's got GMs. That's got, yeah. I mean, you have the hotel to deal with. I mean, <laughs> and then a second hotel and then a third hotel. And then, yeah. wait, yeah. am I counting right here? A fourth? No, the third. Third there hotel. Was, there was the Heathman one, and then there was the Rosa Rosa one, and then right. there was the Portland Penny Diner turned into Right, the, which was all the, the same crown. hotel. So there were technically three three big deals to deal with down there. So yep. uh, in addition to Paley's Place for him. You know, that so was them, one of them. Speaking about the whole, whole hotel thing and, and, and learning how to integrate running a restaurant into running a hotel restaurant. That was, uh, I think one of the first times that Vitaly was truly upset at me. Um, was, How'd that go? let's hear that. <laughs> so I was, a, I was a sous chef at Imperial newly, newly sous chef. This was my first, my first white coat with my name on it. My first like chef title position. Did it and, say Richard Bella? Oh no, that's not my name. Ricky Bella. It's just Ricky. That's it. On on the birth certificate, Ricky Eddie Bella. I got. Two does this nicknames. have anything to do with I Love Lucy? I don't think it does. I think this <laughs> is uh, when a, a seventeen year old girl in North Portland has a kid. She gives him a dumb name. <laughs> it's not a dumb name. It's a good name. But most would assume it would be Ricky. You, you would you would assume there was a more adult name behind it. But no, there's not. Um, so this was it was a really tumultuous time. So I had gotten. This sounds like I'm making it up, and I still can't believe it was real. So Dougie left to go film Top Chef. Um, Did he actually leave the restaurant at that time? He, he, was, he was on he, sabbatical? He Well, he was on sabbatical. He got okay. on a plane and left, and everybody knew where he went, but nobody knew where right. he was. You weren't allowed you know, to you, know. You didn't, you didn't know, but everybody knew where he went. And um, the timing was just ridiculous because this was – the moment when Benny, who was the chef de cuisine there, so remember Dougie was just a sous chef when he went on that damn right. TV show. It was he was one of the very few people on Top Chef, I think, that had gone on and been a contestant that weren't like bona fide chef chefs. He was he was a sous chef. He had can, Benny and Vito ahead ahead of him. Can we digress just a second and not lose our place? And can you share with how you think that might have happened? How did Dougie? get that gig at, at at on top chef yeah on top chef if he's not the usual you know doesn't have the usual stripes then how does I, he do that i think he is a smooth charismatic guy and i think that there was some uniqueness to him mm -hmm. and i and i think that not to take away from his merit because i mean he got on the show and he absolutely fucking killed it and he ended up in the top three but i i always thought that they kind of wanted to stick two people from the same town that, that's what i think it was on it for some hopefully some like hot uh drama or whatever which obviously didn't turn out to be the case because him and Gigi love each other like brothers but 
I, I think they wanted. They developed their love. Did they have love before that, or uh... I, I don't think I don't think they knew each other very right. well before That's that at I all. I thought they I, met there. I met Gigi. I think he came in and eaten. I I was friendly with him, but I don't think they were tight. No. Right. They became just to be clear, because we can't assume everybody listening to this podcast knows who Gigi is. That's, I'm so bad at that kind of thing. That's yeah. all right. Great. I got Great. I gotta be I gotta <laughs> pick up the slack on that. But that's yeah. Gregory Gorday, yeah. now chef owner of Khan. And uh you know, now you can't not know who he is. There was a time right before this where you might not have known he was the I don't know, C D C at uh, departure. To, yep. At yep. the same time, Dougie got on that show from Imperial, you know, Gregory, who, by the way, I've said this before on this podcast, I met him at Departure. I never thought he was a very outgoing guy. If you would have said that's the guy who's going to be who he is in 2023. Take over the, take over the goddamn yeah, world. Yeah. There's, no, there's no way. He's shy. But I, I will say when I met him, when we were, and we're going to get back to your where you were, but I met him at... Um, departure we were doing a portland food adventures event there and i walked away from that meeting he i was really talking to their events coordinator and gregory was just sitting there barely said a word and i left there thinking i don't know how this is going to go but anyway well it's a cool space so but that night at the event man the guy was awesome he stood up and was you know just went through everything and was warm and welcoming and was fun and it was a side of him I hadn't seen yet. So it was a harbinger of what was is that the second time I've used that word today? Holy shit. Um and not that I want to use that word, but why? That's all right. I said tumultuous, that was dumb too. Did you do it twice? <laughs> or, no, or do but we need, I'll give you no, an opening soon, for it a second time. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, Don't say tumultuous. Uh well that's kind of what I was saying with Harbinger. So um anyway, uh so you were talking about Dougie leaving, okay, and then Benny was this, the CDC. And by the way, Benny had some real chops too because he had experience with Vitaly on what at the time and maybe to this day was the greatest food show ever, which was Iron Chef, the toughest anyway. I agree. I uh, I I can still watch Iron Chef to this day. I can't watch all that other crap. It's right. it's all it's all reality television, uh, to be honest. But uh, Iron Chef is like a, a a bunch of cooks cooking food. And it's that's the like, real thing, right? That that's my jam. Uh, yeah, I mean Benny and and another one of my mentors, Patrick McKee and Vito, they went on and they whooped ass. And yeah, they, they crushed it. Uh, Benny Benny is pound for pound maybe the best line cook i've ever seen in my life that dude is that dude's that that's a cold dude on the line man he's, what makes he just, what, so what makes him so good that what makes you it's so obvious to you he's just clean and smooth and there's no wasted movement sometimes you'll see a cook and he, it could be a good cook who gets the shit done and, and puts out good food but they're just they're squirrely they're a spaz their stations look like a hurricane went through it you're seeing all these movements. It's like a, a blur, you know, like the Tasmanian devil. And then you see a cook like Benny, like how I've modeled myself after. It's like, it's just smooth. Dude's just cooking. And you don't even feel like a cook like that is moving super fast. But you look around and everything's done. And you're like, how the hell? How is all that food in the window? I felt like they were like 
almost moving slowly. You know what I mean? And it's like that line in Goodfellas where it says, that's Polly. Polly doesn't have to move fast because Polly doesn't move for anybody. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to, you don't have to move fast. You don't have to be squirrely when your shit's together, when all mm-hmm. your food is up, when your station's clean, you don't have to be panicky, you know? Uh, that was, that was the kind of cook that Benny was, but, um, he, yeah. So he was, he had given his notice to Vitaly that he was leaving Imperial within, I want to say a week or two of Dougie taking, accepting the role on top chef. Mm. And it just could, could not have been crazier times. Uh, Benny was going on. He took the chef job at Laurelhurst market <laughs> And Dougie didn't know. <laughs> and Dougie was going on TV and he had this like crazy momentous thing that he was about to do. And, you know, I think he was probably terrified. Like anybody would be You're about to go be on national television and live out of a hotel for two the months. Kids from and, Montana. Yeah. He's it from, not like even that. Like- he's He's from a tiny ass little oh, town Texas. in East Texas called right. Bullard. And then Montana was the Montana. Montana was like the, the big steppers. town that he left in. Yeah. Right, right, right. I'm sorry, I forgot that. Um, before so he before was, we go much further, I will. But I don't know if we've ever if we've mentioned this is Doug Adams we're talking about as opposed to just Dougie. So correct. D- Doug Adams uh, now of Grand Fur Brewery. Um, That's the one. So anyway, for context. Uh, we're neighbors again. He's not far from where I'm sitting right now. Um, but yeah, so he left the show and Benny didn't tell him that Benny was leaving because he didn't want to like put that burden on him because he, he loved Dougie. Dougie was his boy and Dougie was about to go do this big, scary, terrifying thing. So Benny just let him go and do it. And I was like, I'll tell him when he gets back so he doesn't have to like worry about any all that. But I knew because... Vitaly promoted me to a sous chef because all of this was going on. It's like, okay, Dougie is out for, I think it was two months. Uh, Benny has his notice in our chef de cuisine, like our boss, boss, like the, the leader of the pack. Benny's not going to be around that much longer either. We need new sous chefs. We need to get them trained up. So I was like very literally thrown into the fire. It was like, Dougie's gone. There's going to be no real like training. You're not going to be able to get a work with Dougie day in and day out and learn how to be a sous chef and learn exactly what he does. Cause he's out for two months filming this TV show. And did so you know at the time it was going to be two months or was that, did they, <clears throat> was that a finite thing at the time or however much it was, I think we knew how long he was going to be gone because like once you get kicked off the show, you can't come back home. Otherwise, everybody knows that you left. Right. So you got to sit. You got to sit around in uh, Boston until like the show's. Oh, I, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah. You can't. So, it's 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 the same amount of time for everybody, regardless of how far you go in the show. Wow. Um, so they go to all that trouble for sixteen people to have them hang around so that nobody knows who won. That yeah. no one can guess. That's interesting. Yeah. I I guess Absolutely. I knew that, but I never put. To and you never think about together. it. Yeah. Yep. So, um, but then there's Vitaly's there, right? I mean, he has some knowledge of how to train people. Vitaly was there the entire time, but it's it's just a little different. Vito is like one step 
above the person who was one step above me being trained to be one step under them. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. like Vitaly as chef owner and, you know, like the mastermind behind this empire, he doesn't know the nitty gritties of what being a sous chef at Imperial is like. And that's no fault of him. That's like how it's designed to be. You pay people to do the things for you and you trust them to do it. But like, you know, I, I can go to Vito and be like, hey, Vito, should I order two cases of chickens or one? <laughs> you know, like, like I don't know. I'm going to go in a meeting with uh, investors and hotel owners right now. I don't deal with cases of chicken anymore. And, <laughs> and you probably had to order six once Dougie went on Top Chef with his fried chicken. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were, because we were, then it became the thing. That was the thing. Yeah, that was, you know, it's funny to look back at that dish now because like, I don't know, I don't want to, like, speak badly on what we were doing and how proud I am of everything we accomplished, but it wasn't all that great. It was boneless, skinless <laughs> chicken thighs with some, it was some with some pickles. It was mind-blowing at the time, but now I look at it, Dougie's fried chicken now is fucking, is, excuse my language, Dougie's fried chicken now is a million miles ahead of what that dish was. And, you know, I, I could go into a kitchen right now and make a better fried chicken with my eyes closed. It's just funny to look back at that boneless, skinless thigh fried chicken dish that like had the city of Portland in a stranglehold. Right, People well, also, will go it's, crazy. It's for a it. statement on Top Chef too, because if it wasn't that fantastic, and this is just me reacting to what you just said, I'm not, it was it was good. It was a yeah, really no, good bite. I, 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 I like thighs, <laughs> so it was good. I remember it. But I will say this: one of my stories, and I don't think Vitaly will care that I'm. out of school at this stage of the game but i remember having a conversation with him and he said chris i went to all this training in france i've made these incredible you know wonderful dishes that took me years to develop and i was very proud of that and then what my restaurant becomes known for is fucking fried chicken (laughs) (laughs) i can hear vitaly in his accent i can hear the veto accent saying that Right, and I think it was the first time I ever heard him swear when when he said that. Doesn't do it all that often. Right. And so but what came out that day was like, oh my God. And you know, he he was very fond of of Dougie. So he wasn't making a statement on that. He was I mean, listen, he listen, he was getting the paychecks, right? Like the fried chicken he 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 reaped the rewards, you know. And that's that's a reality that a lot of chefs eventually come to i had that same moment the i the first time i did a fried chicken fermented jalapeno queso crunch wrap supreme like you that's get something on the, that's in the taco bell realm it's, it was it was it was it's exactly that I, I took the thing at taco bell that i used to get when i was blackout <laughs> pissed drunk at three in the morning mm-hmm. but I, I did it i did it like a balled out and did, you know, three sisters make some all corn tortillas and house made queso and fried chicken and and all this crazy extravagant stuff. And I remember taking a bite of it and being like, son of a bitch, that's the best bite of bite of food I've ever cooked. Mm. And I was like kind of upset about it. <laughs> like I remember sweating over risotto pots at Paley's place and gently putting scallops <laughs> on them. <laughs> like my hand shaking, you know, on my first saute shift. And this bite of this fried chicken Taco Bell Crunch Wrap was like maybe the best bite of food I had ever cooked. And 
you know, same thing with Vitaly. It's like, hey, whatever. His contract's selling really well. I'll take it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna complain. I I think we've all done that. And I think what you know what's happened in Portland over the years is everybody has gotten used to a certain um, level of food or a certain type of food. Is and I, if anybody listens to this podcast knows, I believe this or I think this. Sometimes you know, just the easiest, simplest food. I, a really good pizza. I'll enjoy as much as tweezer, you know, the best tweezer food from Will Price, who's just an incredibly talented guy. And That's I love boy. his food, but push boy. comes to shove. Instead of a $200 meal there, give me a, you know, give me a, a slice really of pizza for $4. Burger. And yep. uh, yeah, I'm just as happy. So, um, Tiny anyway. anecdote about uh, Will. Will, I used to work on top of, I think I was a line cook at Imperial at the time. I was taking, I was going all my days off working at a Crown Paella for Scott Ketterman, another Paley's Place alum, mm-hmm. uh, who did this who's, amazing Who's paella. doing pizza? Speaking of pizza. He's doing, he's doing pizzas now. Um, I used to go do events with him all my days off and, and learn paella and, and learn from him. And uh, we would prep at this commissary kitchen downtown called kitchen crew. I don't know if it's around. I don't know if it's around still, but uh, that's where we would prep out all of our stuff before we, you know, threw it in. That's where whole fast started. Yeah. So Will will would be there and I would be there cleaning like a hundred pounds of mussels and clams for Scotty. And Scotty was very specific about his cooking in general, but about his, mussels that went into his paella you had to scrub every single one until they were shiny black you had to smell every single one because his 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 thinking was that one bad muscle will ruin a pan of paella that's supposed to feed a hundred people you know it was it it could also ruin someone appetite someone's appetite for mussels for the rest of their lives yep one bad muscle and they're missing out because mussels are incredible exactly um, but yeah, I would sit there in the sink just over and over hundreds of these mussels and in clams too, scrubbing them all off, smelling them, making sure they're good. And uh, Will would always be there doing the exact opposite of what I was doing. Some sort of like crazy molecular shit that I I had no, <laughs> and he would just come over and like hand me bites of stuff and be like, Hey man, try this. And be like, what is this? And then his explanation would sound like something out of Star Trek. And I'd be like, Whoa, that's cool. I'm going to go back to cleaning my scrubbing my muscle shells again well that's a good that is a pretty cool experience to be able to be there and then uh close to seeing what will was doing so you're talking about different tiers you know first it's the the pop-up dinners that benny's doing and now you're now you're working for scott and you're getting watching will who by the way that was something pretty new for portland as well what what Will and eventually Joel, I think, did they start that together? Yes. They did, probably. yeah. yeah. Will and Joel, and they have both, you know, have are successful in their own right. You know, you talk about things evolving and changing, and that, we were all heartbroken when Holdfast closed, and it would be nice if it was still open for sure, but those guys have gone on to do really cool things outside of Holdfast since, separately. And they're both great dudes, I, you know. Right. Not every person who crushes it at restaurants is this like amazing person that I feel like deserves it, but those two are absolutely like, yeah, 
all all the success they get is is merited. Right, and they're cool and calm and collected with with how I would imagine it would give me a headache to be that meticulous with food. Well, it's funny because it's so meticulous and it's so fine dining. And, and, you know, to be honest, their food is like a lot of what other kids like try to do and mm-hmm. they're not doing it as well in right. town. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of cooks. There's a lot of chefs in town trying to do the Will Priest thing. And it, you can, at least I can see it on the plate. And I'm like, yeah, that's not the same. It's, that's not on the level that he's doing it. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it as it's it's such a void of like machismo and like aggression and like jock mentality that some chefs can have sometimes you know um i mean kind of like what we we're talking about with Gigi, right with gregory gorday like just like calm unassuming quiet but still like firm and in command and not having to you know be like the old Bourdain stories of chefs screaming and throwing saute pans and you know all that stuff like Will is the quiet unassuming guy who's holding himself and people around him up to standards that not a lot of people are and he's doing it like almost at a whisper right <laughs> Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat in Portland, an institution, as it were, Ringside Steakhouse. 79, over 79 years. I remember we were just saying 75 years, so time's flying, and uh, and we're coming up on an 80-year institution in Portland, uh, Ringside Steakhouse, where now, something they didn't have for most of those 80 years was, an, was outdoor dining, and their patio is awesome. And um, it's really nice spot to eat. They have they have some heaters out there if you need them. It's really pretty. So whether you're eating, you know, when you eat at ringside, you can either eat in the beautiful dining room, the bar. Now you can make reservations to eat in the bar or outside. Lots of choices there. In addition to lots of choices for different cuts of steak, right, Court? Yeah, I was just telling you this off air. Chris, I went just recently with my wife, Randy. Uh, you had been telling me, you got to get the Wagyu, you got to get the Wagyu. I, I finally did, um, because there's so many great items to choose from, and I just hadn't got to it yet. I went with the olive-fed Wagyu, and it, easily the best steak I have ever had in my life. I, like, yeah. I was dumbfounded by it. It's a treat. It's not something you're going to get every time you go in there because it's a little expensive. Sure. But I've seen it for way more elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's something if you have, you know, a couple of times you get to say, just like you did, that it's the best steak you've ever had. And they have it. They have different options, too. So olive, olive fed is just one of them. The food, the food is delicious. And the service is absolutely bar none. The best in town. We had Colin serving us and just the best service the entire night. Best food. If it's a special occasion, if it's not a special occasion, Ringside Steakhouse is the place to go. Yeah, it will be just go in there. It will turn into a special occasion. There it is. So, uh, and they also have food to go now, and they even on their website they've got a, a scrolling banner. Ringside steaks are on sale, so that's a good opportunity as well. So they are on West Burnside. They're open. Let's give the hours here: four thirty to nine Monday through Thursday, four to nine thirty Friday and Saturday, and four to nine on Sunday. And, of course, set up those reservations. You can do that through the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com, or on the Open Table app. 
Speaking of which, you can't, I don't think, and I'm not in kitchens, I don't know, but from what I read and hear, you can't be the, the person throwing pots and pans around and screaming at people and yelling and hitting them in the back of the head and shit, and you can't do that anymore. I don't not think. anymore, not anymore, but it's not as far removed as I feel like some people think it is. I mean, I, I experienced some of that in kitchens from mm-hmm. some cooks and, and chefs. I've seen saute pans thrown. I'm not all that old. I mean, Recently? In no. The last, in the last three years, five years? No, not in the last five years, but when I got into the game, you know. Right, I, I, I feel like, expect that. I feel like some people think that those days were like the 80s and 90s and the Bourdain days. When those days were not as long Ago no, as, I think it was like before two thousand, maybe two thousand eighteen. Yeah, I think the uh, the Me Too movement changed all of that. Just my guess. That is I mean, it, timing. It changed everything. I think right. that. I mean that that whole restaurant kind of revolt that happened in twenty twenty. I think put everybody on their feet, and I think that the ripple effect from that is still being seen every single day i mean even just i i think this is all speculation i think that the pool of middle tier to good tier cooks who can execute fine dining food now today is half the size that it was before 2020 before the 86 list before that whole movement, I think that the the amount of cooks in at least my city in Portland, Oregon, that are very good cooks who can come in and do the job and are the type of people that you want in the kitchen, I think we're at, at like 50% of what we were before because I think half of them left because I think that was an eye-opening moment for a lot of people where they're like, wait, why the fuck are we doing this for the amount of money? that we're making right. and working, working the hours we're making and working the shifts as long as we are. And we're doing all of this for what, for experience. I, I can't pay my bills and I'm getting, and I'm in this intense high pressure environment. And a lot and of the I restaurants couldn't pay their bills either. So. The cooks, the cooks are laid on rent. The restaurant is laid on rent. Like it is, it is just a, such a flawed, inherently wrong structure and I think that that 2020 was a big moment of realization for the employers running the restaurants and the employees physically running the restaurants of like, wait, why are we doing this? And a lot of them were young, well-off-ish, coming from middle to upper class white kids who were doing it because they wanted to have the tweezers and the leather aprons and the, all that fine dining stuff. I think that after 2020, there was a moment where they're like, wait a minute, I'm going to go get a job in digital marketing. This is, this is ridiculous. Like, well, not only I, don't, that, I don't, I don't need this money, you know? Well, also it created in 2020. They didn't, they had to think about it because they didn't have a job all of a sudden. They were, they were sitting at home. Right. Right. Like, so wait, I'm going to go back to work and get yelled at by my chef. 
for sixteen dollars. Well, not only that, but I'm gonna. How about this? I'm gonna go back to work, and this could happen again. I don't want to. I don't want this to happen again, where right. I'm out of I'm out of work, and you know we got to figure can't this work out from again. Home. Yeah, so can't you can't I, grill steaks from home? I think uh, I think that's largely. I mean, there's a lot of it, a lot of things that went into it, but yeah, that went into it too. And then you've got social media on top of it, which is calling out any, all of a sudden, holy shit, people are being called out without any vetting, by the way. Let's just yep. say that. The, 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 some of it was absolutely justified, I'm sure, and some of it was like, holy shit, these are accusations that are just out there that now everybody thinks are true. I and- think that was a, per- a perfect example of something that gets said in kitchens. All day, every day, it's something wrong happens, and you go, "That's why we can't have nice things." Right. Somebody drops something. That's why we can't have nice things. That whole eighty-six list movement was a perfect example of why we can't have nice things because the idea behind it is right. The 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 realization that the restaurant industry can be a rotten, slimy, horrific place to work is true. And the and knowing that we have so much work to do and so much progress needs to be made as fast as humanly possible is something we all need to know. And I am so behind that movement. And to be quite honest, I have been trying to do that from the inside since almost the moment since the moment that I had any sort of like managerial or leadership role. I mean, I was the kid who was a cook on the line dealing with all the problems that a cook does. And then all of a sudden I was, you know, a a chef and I was like, Hey, like I know the things that suck. Let's try to fix them. So I was so on board with all that stuff. Are they that easily fixed? I mean, it's, it's one thing to say we need to fix it. It's another thing to actually, you know, you have to know that the people who were doing things wrong for a long time, probably a lot of them, not all of them, but some of them at least, wanted to fix it. They just didn't have the knowledge or the tools or the structure wasn't there to do it. You can't all of a sudden say, Hey, you're going to be making $25 an hour. No, you you absolutely can't. And that's why, that's why that movement could have been so valuable because it can't be one thing that one chef does in one restaurant. It has to be, it has to be a changing of the tides, you know? And I thought that 86 list thing and that whole turn, could have been that but that's why we can't have nice things it turned into something just as toxic and shitty as what it was trying to stop you know and people that were going on that fucking site uh virtue signaling and pointing fingers and stuff ended up getting called out as well and it just turned into this ouroboros of the snake eating its tail and not a lot was accomplished and it was such a bummer because so many things that they were talking about needed to be accomplished, but it didn't. And by the end of it, you had people going on there and like trying to cancel restaurants for like personal disputes with coworkers that were not, you know what I mean? Like it started to protect people from like sexual harassment and like predatory working environments and working for free and being underpaid and all these very big, things that needed to be addressed and by the end of it you had people make the post on there and it's like this person said something that i didn't like right like what the hell is what you guys have completely lost the thread this thing has 
had its full life cycle and has died and is completely pointless now. Good job. That's why we can't have nice things. Well, I'm glad it's good to hear your take on it because I've always felt my take is not valid because I wasn't in the industry itself. So um, I've kind of avoided talking about the 86 list because uh, I have my thoughts on it. But in terms of my being a, um, a valid viewpoint, I, I don't know. So, but yours is quite valid because you're in the middle of it. What are you doing? How is Palomar? We only have so much more time. How is Palomar doing for you in that regard compared to where you think it might have been if you'd taken the, you know, taken the reins, I don't know, four, four years ago? I mean, the metaphor that I use now for trying to have a healthy culture in the kitchen is that you know when it's wrong and if you just take the option off the table then you're left with whatever you just have to figure out and that might be confusing but here's what i mean if you know that your cooks don't have enough time to set up their stations by five o'clock their list is too big they're what you're expecting of them is unrealistic and those cooks are coming in and working off the clock for an hour so that they can get all the shit done and be ready by five because they're good cooks and they care and they take pride in what they're doing. If you know that's the case, you just don't allow it. You don't let people walk in your kitchen until the time they clock in. And then, sure, so now they don't have enough time to set up the station. Cool, now what do you do? Well, we got to tweak the menu. We got to change how we write our prep list. We have to adjust PARS somehow. Whatever we have to do so that cooks aren't coming in and working off the clock for free to get their shit done, that's just what we're going to do now because the option of having them come in and work off the clock is off the table. So we just got to figure out. And it's a lot. I tell my cooks, it's like overcooking a steak on the line, right? You got a, a medium rare steak for ground seven. You overcook it. We're not going to sell that steak. That's off the table. So now what do we do? Now you get to problem solving, right? Is there another steak for another table that we could sell for that and get another one on the fly? Can we talk to the server and drop a small uh, gift appetizer at the table and tell them their entrees? Will, they're just going to be a little bit longer, but we want it to be perfect and they'll be out soon. All these other options are there. We took the bad shitty option, which is serve a well-done steak. We took it off the table. It's not an option now. Now you just have to figure it out. Right. And it's the same thing. You don't get to throw saute pans and yell at your cooks to get them to do what they want. That's off the table. Now get to problem solving. How do we communicate better? How do we express ourselves in a safe way for everybody? How do I hold cooks to very high standards, push them to be the best that they can be every day without intimidation, without threats of slamming shit around right like you get the negative option off the table and then you start weeding through and you start figuring out what is going to work because the shitty thing you don't do it anymore so to go back to the original example is just paying them for that hour to come in and prep off the table or you just don't have that revenue it all it all depends right like you know are do your cooks work 40 hours a week so is that extra hour going to be time and a half we know that paying overtime is not sustainable. You can't do that. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I think 
somebody at some point in the Vitali Paley Empire, one of my chefs explained to me, it's like every time that you pay a cook time and a half, A, they're working too much because over time, pay is there for a reason to discourage employers from working people more than 40 hours a week. There's a reason behind it. It's not just some arbitrary thing. Right. right. And 40 hours a week in that industry is, is the equivalent of 60 hours for someone sitting at a desk. Look, I couldn't tell you because I've never sat at a desk. But <laughs> yeah, probably. But not only that, you are choosing to spend a dollar and then take 50 cents and throw it in the garbage. Right. That is, if, if you went to a business owner and were like, hey, for every dollar I spend uh, from 730 on for the rest of the night, they're going to be in overtime. For every dollar we spend in this restaurant, we're throwing 50 cents in the trash. Obviously not a, a, a smart business plan, right? So you don't do that. You don't pay the overtime. But again, what does that leave us? You know, is our menu well, too, is our menu too intricate? Are we trying to do too much with too little labor? You got to have hard, real conversations about that, you know? Right. And part, and some of it, uh, an obvious offshoot of that is, well, maybe customers have to pay more. And when that happens, then you got a whole, I've heard it. I, I've experienced it. Everybody's talking, man, the cost of dining has gone up a lot. And so it's not, it's not high enough. Everyone, every single person that says that, they, they don't know. Well, their feelings are valid. You know, like money's tough. Rhett is crazy. Everyone needs to, you know, be looking out for their wallet. But I think the public perception, the public relationship with what it takes to cook and serve food is one of the biggest problems with our industry and its culture is there is such a huge disconnect. Because a person goes to a restaurant and orders, I don't know, like, let me just, for example, our croquetas. You come in, you pay for those croquetas, you feel like those should be $2 cheaper. Imagine if you went to the grocery store, bought everything it needed to make those croquetas, prepped it all. You're talking ham, flour, butter, onions, garlic lime the fry oil oil you fry them in the dishes that you had to do cleaning the dishes that you had to run getting them on the stove getting your fryer oil hot frying those croquetas pulling them out salting them making the sauce your cream cheese your guava dip your your uh sherry vinegar your heavy cream all that shit that you made to eat five croquetas how much do you feel like that is worth do you feel like it's worth more than nine dollars after you made it and you have the right fryers to, to make those, right? You got to pay for those and the oil right. that goes in there. And, and then take that home cook who did that, who, who spent six hours to make six croquetta bites and then hand them $9 and say thanks. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting it that you're, you're pointing it out in that fashion because I just had an experience in the last couple of days. Um, my, uh, my girlfriend was coming out and we just, she just said, do you want me to bring something to make? And she's a good cook. I said, how about, we've done this before. I got a bunch of, I got Paley's Place cookbook. I got everybody's cookbooks here. I don't cook that much, but, but it's nice for her to cook. So anyway, I said, let me pull, I pulled out the old Country Cat Heartlandia cookbook, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Which I, it's got a lot of stuff in there that I like. 
I threw two things out. She sent her some pictures of a couple of recipes. How about this? She went to the store, came and uh, brought all the stuff, looked at the um, – I looked at the, the slip from Roth's in Salem. $142 yeah. for the shit for two, two meals. Doesn't, we didn't have dessert. It was two entrees and a couple of side dishes for two nights. Right. And then, then she got sick and had to go, and I cooked it. I spent the whole fucking day Sunday <laughs> cooking, and I'm bringing her this afternoon. I'm bringing her most uh, half of it just because I thought, you should have this. You bought all the food. You're sick. So I'm dropping it off in Salem. But that's $142 before I even <laughs> fired up a, a pan, and I, now, I'm not else getting paid. But Now imagine, shit. yeah, imagine you paid yourself 20 bucks an hour to do that. Now how much did that cost? Well, twenty. You couldn't pay me twenty bucks. No, you. You wouldn't do it. Right, I, <laughs> you wouldn't do I, it. I wouldn't do it for anybody but Renee and me, yep. or good friends. But my point is, that's kind of that kind of points it out. And I, oftentimes, I'll say also when we're talking about what to do for dinner. Listen, let's just go out because by the time I go to get the stuff for what seems like it's not going to be expensive meal, and then I go and get milk and I get this that I need anyway, it's a hundred dollar trip to the grocery store. So I'd rather just mm -hmm. go out and spend fifty somewhere for the two of us somewhere wherever Absolutely. it is sixty. And, so, and if on top of all of that, you know, the idea of the tip structure. And the fact that we rely on tips to okay. pay everybody, like what we would actually charge to pay everyone here a living wage with no tips, nobody would ever go to a restaurant. If you just, it didn't even, doesn't matter what it is. If you were selling cheeseburgers and all of the cost of all of the labor for prepping everything and buying everything and all of that, if you eliminated the tip structure, which is an asinine and insane thing that we just accept because it's a part of it. But if anybody took a step back, they'd be like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. Why would he ever do this? You eliminate the tip structure and you're paying your server 20 bucks an hour to serve your table and the cooks 20 bucks an hour. Nobody would ever go to a restaurant and buy a cheeseburger ever again. That would be the last cheeseburger ever sold. Mm. So that's what I mean when the public perception is it's just skewed and it's skewed on such a massive cultural national level that we, like you said, you can't, you know, it, one person can't fix any of it. I mean, Gabe Rucker, one of the city's best chef ever, Argu arguably the most important chef in Portland for the past 15 years, mm -hmm. guys. James Beard Awards, like you're national get, recognition. You're not going to get too many people to argue that. And you're not going to get more of a relevant and um, popular and successful chef in town than Gabe Rucker. He tried to go tipless, and even he couldn't do it. Right. He went back after a couple months and was like, yeah, this is going, this is not working. We're going back to the old shitty model because one person can't do it, you know. And if Gabe Rucker, the hot was in the hot of his hot prime of his prime couldn't do it you know it would have to take some sort of drastic continental change in restaurants and restaurant culture to figure out how to pay everybody a living wage and still sell cheeseburgers but you know yeah we um, could fill 10 podcasts talking about that
Oh, we have. And then <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you have. You're getting into tipping, and I'm just like, uh, I'm a little shy to talk about tipping I, at I'm, this point because I've done I'm it sure, so much, sure. and I have my thoughts on it, and they don't necessarily – there is no easy fix because my nope. thoughts are – I thought for a while I was an outlier – and I had people writing us saying, hey, would you fucking stop talking about tipping on the podcast? Wow, and, really? And they were right. And so not, not, these were not industry people saying you're hurting us. These were people sick of hearing me talk about it. And, I see, I see. And then, um, and I don't blame them. But then all of a sudden, when I stopped talking about it, then in the news, people are tip weary. Now there's a, there's, other people are talking about it and i don't think it's only because of restaurants i think you've got uber you've got everything now that you can tip on and i think right and and if you go back to it i'm going to say literally limit myself to 15 more seconds on this <laughs> my thing has never been at restaurants with tips never been my thing my thing is at coffee shops with the square that's where my thing comes in where it's like holy shit uh, you're handing me four donuts, uh, and now I'm tipping you on that. So I don't. Right, I, that one's right. that one's tough to make that so, decision in a situation where people are standing behind you, looking at what you're tipping. It's all very fucked up. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be that way. So that and that's the thing is that it's not the coffee shop's fault, and it's not your fault for feeling some type of way about tipping two dollars right. on four dollars. It's you know, it's it's the system. It's a systemic problem, and it's so absurd. And if an alien came down from space today and you explained this uh, operation we got going, the alien would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Why would you ever do this? I'm going to make a suggestion to you. I don't know how much time you have, but I ran across a documentary. I think it was on Max on Horn and Hardart, which was in Philadelphia and New York. I'm and, and the biggest thing ever, I mean, it, the automats, the, it might be called the automat with Mel Brooks and everything. Oh my God, you should watch that because it goes back a hundred, over a hundred years. And what happened and what killed them was going from five cents a cup of coffee to 10. That was wow. it. And, um, but anyway, there's a lot there that people really love the automat. Those are the things with the windows, right? That, that, oh, you don't see them anymore. Of course. Maybe in Amsterdam, I've seen them. But one of the things people loved is you could go and put a, two nickels in, get a piece of pie, and you didn't have to think about tipping. Right. And I right. thought about that while I was watching that. That was, you know, that's one thing that made it very successful was that you could just go in and eat. Uh, uh, just much like Portland has developed um, community style, you sit down at a table with other people. And mm -hmm. one of the things that made it so great, it was so diverse, right? People from all walks of life were sitting down next to each other. Anyway, yeah. I just suggested for you and for anybody listening to this and anybody's into the food world and how it works, uh, this stuff has been going on for years. So, uh, But we haven't fixed it yet. And it's I don't know how to fix it. What do you do? St shut everything down and say, okay, we're retooling and this is the way it's going to be. Now we've got electric vehicles. No more gas vehicles. Here they are. You can't do that in the food right. and the restaurant world. Right, and, and, and there's no there's no dictator who can just snap their fingers and, you know, like uh, like wartime uh, presidential control or whatever, you know, it's, there's, you can't, you can't have a conversation about any about it, anything about it without 10 people arguing 
and everyone well, knows that they're and everyone knows that they're right, and everyone else is wrong. And, and you also can't get uh, restaurant tours getting together and quote unquote colluding. So that's illegal, and it would be right. immoral. <laughs> And but that would help to fix it if they could all come up with something that would make everybody happy—customers, employees, investors, whatever. Now there are some restaurants that are doing okay that you know don't have as many challenges as others. But even that, even with that, you just said you've got fifty percent fewer cooks, uh, talented cooks out there right now. How do you deal with that? And um, well, that is, it's, it's only a challenge if you care about those types of things and you set the standard for your, yourself of having a healthy kitchen culture where it's a good, safe place to work and you're paying your cooks as much as you can pay them without going under those expectations are they're self not inflicted that's not the right word they're self-imposed expectations mm-hmm. you know you don't have to do that there's there's all there's restaurants you can close your eyes and throw a rock and hit a restaurant that doesn't think about or care about or or invest time and energy into those types of things so you you really just have to understand that these are self-imposed expectations you hold yourself to and you just have to be patient and you have to hire the right people and you have to listen to your gut and know that you're hiring the right person who is on the same wavelength as you, because you know, it's, it's a tough balancing act. You find a a good cook and maybe they need some work. Maybe, maybe they need some work with their organizational skills or their knife work isn't great, or they're really good at prepping, but they're, they need, there's room to grow on the line and there's X, Y, and Z things that they need to do to become a better cook. Well, if that's not what they want, that's not what they signed up for. Then you hire, you hired the wrong person. That was not a good fit for your culture. Mm-hmm. And, and now you have a whole new, you know, uh, exponential list of headaches that you have to deal with. So you have to find somebody you have to build a team of cooks who are all good cooks, who are good people, who care about the people working around them, that have each other's backs, that want to learn, that want to grow, but that also value, you know, their time away from work and aren't the type of people to um, capitulate to some of the expectations that some shittier restaurants can hold on people. It's, honestly the hardest thing that a chef will ever do in their career is to put together a good group of people who are all on the same page who all benefit from working with each other and because that's the hardest thing this job requires of you a lot of the time chefs don't do it because you if you're gonna flake on anything you're gonna flake on the thing that's most difficult and you're just going to hire a bunch of random people and they're not going to have and the same. Them. Yeah. They're not going to have the same perspective as, as you, they're not going to have the same expectations out of their job as your expectations are of their job. They're, you know, you hire one shitty cook who's going to, you know, steal his partner's mise en place or like 
not have his partner's back. This partner has a huge pick. That cook's going to cook their plates of food, their three plates, and then sit there and watch the other cook cook their nine plates of food, right? Like hiring that one dickhead just affected every other cook in your kitchen. So now you have seven other cooks that have to deal with this dickhead, right? So like finding good cooks is so much more about just finding somebody who can execute the food. It's finding somebody who fits with you as the chef and fits within the group. And you just have to have patience. And those people aren't coming and knocking at your door in droves. Like you have to, as, as a chef, as your salary chef, right? Like you might have to work stations for a week, two weeks until you find the cook who's the right fit. You have to be diligent because you can't panic hire somebody who is going to affect the room, you know, who's going to, or who's not at the right skill level. You can't hire somebody who can't do the job. And then you bring them in here and you're like, I need you to cook 25 steaks tonight and I want them to all be perfect. And, you know, everyone else is better than you. And now you're in this environment that's like emotionally taxing on you. That's that chef who hires that cook who's not good enough. That's that chef's fault, you know? So, well, I think one of the advantages you have as someone who's been around the block in Portland and you know, working for a small owner operator, right? No one's, there aren't a lot of chains in Portland. They are on the outskirts, but, um, is that, you know, you get a reputation. You're your own rating system. You're your own, uh, <laughs> seriously. I mean, people ha- would have heard about how it is to work for Ricky. How right. it, is it to work for Benny? How is it to work for Vitaly? Any, anybody. And, Eventually, the, you know, it's a small world out there. It gets around. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that helps a little bit to have morals and scruples and thoughts and to care about the things you're talking about. Hey, man, I've been doing this for 10 years. I don't hear a lot of what you're talking about. And it could be the questions I'm asking, too, you know. But we've heard it a lot. We've heard it quite a bit from you know, when I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm doing a little survivor in my head of all the people who've been on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was, there was Greg and there was this person, but, um, yeah. So I think that is, uh, I'm guessing that it gives you a little bit of a leg up as difficult as it is, but people knowing and other people are working for you saying, Hey, you'd like working here. That, uh, that, curates itself after a while so you can do that so um go ahead i i didn't uh, interrupt you i was just gonna say that i it's it's always a red flag you look at a chef and you look at his team and if, if they don't have anybody working with them that's been with them for a long time and gone from restaurant to restaurant with them like that's that's a red flag right there you know i i followed benny through four restaurants I followed mm-hmm. I followed Vitaly to three of them. I followed Dougie to two of them. Like because I valued working for them. If you see a chef that doesn't have a crew, doesn't have a tight knit crew or like you know, a crew within the crew, like they say in point break where the bank robbers is the group within the group of the surfers, like that that should tell you something. You should be concerned if, if the chef doesn't have these these reoccurring people that feel comfortable working for them. They feel comfortable having them in their kitchen, you know, and it's, there's also something to be said about the idea that 
nothing is ever stagnant and and people are a work in progress including chefs especially chefs right like there there's cooks out there who worked for me 10 years ago there's a few of them who are gonna be like yeah ricky's a dickhead yeah i don't like working for that guy it sucked 10 years ago i probably was a dickhead you know sometimes i was probably a de- i was probably a decent leader and 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 chef 10 years ago when i was first starting it but not all the time Right. Maybe and not even fifty percent of the time, you and know? you probably have your moments now where you're not so perfect. Either. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 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 a moving target, is what I'm trying to say. Is right. it's always it's always 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 a moving target, and you just got to pay attention. All right, so let's talk about you were talking about consistency, I guess, as it relates to people. But um, we've been here a while. I don't want to keep you any longer. It's your day off. You're fine. Um, but we I'm, should I'm talk chilling. a little. We should. I just like to get in a little bit about why people should be visiting Palomar to eat your food now. So yeah, t- let's let's hear that, and then uh, let's just one other question after that, and you shall be released. Shameless, shameless self promotion. I love it. Um, I mean, honestly, I anybody would say this going on a podcast, but I I think this is the best food that I've served in my career i think it's the most interesting food that i've served as my food not to say that my food is more interesting than vitaly's was when i was cooking it as far as food that i have served that is my um that is my vision i I think this is this food has the most to say out of anything i've done before i think it's really it's a really unique menu i think that it being me going and working for a cuban guy running a cuban cocktail bar that accidentally turned into a restaurant who then goes and hires a mexican guy who has been cooking mexican food professionally for several years but also grew up cutting his teeth under vitaly and and dougie and benny and well-versed in like classic French stuff, which then has this weird circle back to Ricky Gomez, who was born and raised in Louisiana. And obviously the French culture there is inseparable from it. There's just, there's all of these weird little dots that have been connected over the past year that have led to the menu that we're serving now. And I think that it's just something that you don't really find anywhere else. And I think it's really fucking good. So it's different than the menu. You're going to say yes, I know. Than I had when I was last there, which was, oh god, four four years ago, maybe. I would say it was not even the same operate. It's not the same food operation as it was then. I mean, I okay. I changed maybe seventy five percent of the menu right okay. when I started. There was a handful of things that Ricky was like, "You can't touch the Frida Cubana." It's like a chorizo smash burger with French fries on it, and I was like, "Cool, I don't want to touch that." That, that sounds, was my that first. The first thing I ever had in, <laughs> in Portland was at Moo Moo. You probably remember that by the movie. Yeah, movie yeah, yeah. Place. That's ringing a bell. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So not I'm to be not to be confused with Momo, the bar that right. I no, 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 no. It was Moo Moo. Yeah, I yeah, came yeah. in from Connecticut, and they were serving burgers with smashed French fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On them, that was the first thing I ever put in my mouth in the city of Portland, Oregon. So crazy. Funny that you mentioned that. Uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I couldn't touch. The croquetas were one of the things that I couldn't touch. And then his 
mom's recipe, the flan that was his mom's recipe. So I was like, cool. I would never want to change any of those three things anyways. Let's get to work on the rest. And it's totally. So what's your quickly, I I have to walk away for a second while I'm doing that. Why don't you talk about a couple of things on the menu that you really want people to come in and try. And uh, I'll be right back. Tight. I'll talk to the bookcase behind you. Uh, come in, come in and try the chicken wings, man. The chicken wings are bomb. We braise them in mojo, uh, and then we pick them up with butter and hot sauce. And my my housemaid, Grandpa Wetto's hot sauce. And you're not you're not gonna find a better wing in town. That's controversial, but I'll say it. Uh, come in and get the carpaccio. It's raw wagyu beef sliced thin with uh, ropa vieja relish. So ropa vieja is how you're back. Uh, Ropa Vieja is a very classic Cuban dish of br- slow braised beef. And it's this big, hearty dish with um, olives and onions and peppers and garlic and tomato. And it's, it's like a big stewed beef dish. So I took all those concepts and flipped it on its head. And it's the exact opposite. It's a carpaccio dish. So it's fresh, clean flavors, raw beef sliced thin with a Ropa Vieja relish over it, which has all the components of how the beef would normally get braised onions, peppers, garlic, tomatoes, olives. Um, and it's bomb. It's a trip. It's like the flavor profile of beef stew presented in this cold appetizer. And I dig the hell out of that. That sounds good. That's a long way from the coffee shop. It's a long way from the coffee shop. <laughs> a long way. All right. Real quickly. A uh, couple of places you've been lately that um, you were happy you went to eat. Oh, let's see. Where the last food that I paid money for, I had a JoJo spicy patty melt, add bacon with cheddar JoJo's and barbecue sauce, and go there and order that exact thing. I worked there for about ten months. This uh, is a JoJo. Jojo, yeah. Yeah. I made I made a lot of that food. I tasted a lot of that food and I have procured the perfect meal from Jojo and that's what it is. Spicy right. patty melt, add bacon, cheddar Jojo's and barbecue sauce. Um outside of that, what else have I had lately? Um oh, my boy Carlos, he was one of our sous chefs at Bullard. Um he has a pop up called Canine Club, I believe. Uh and he served me this fucked up dish it was an entire ham hock braised i think and it was had the bone in it and it was just completely like falling off the bone tender and then he served it with like bao buns and like cucumber and pickles on the side and you made your own you pulled this ham hock off and it shredded as you did it and then you made your own buns and that was probably one of the better bites of food i've had in a year or two as well do you know how to what that's called that pop-up is called yeah, let me double check the spelling because I want to get my boy some exposure because he deserves it. Uh, talk about unsung heroes, man. As far as Bullard goes, him being our opening sous chef, that kid, I say kid because he was a baby when he started. He was like in his early 20s. He contributed so much to Bullard that people I don't think will ever know. One of the smartest kids who's ever worked for me, twice the cook that I am. Uh, yeah, Kanin Club. K-A-N-I-N-C-L-U-B. Club. If 
he's doing this whole ham hock on the next pop-up order. Cool. Thank you so much, man. This was great. That's why I loved it. That's why I love this podcast. I hope others do too, because you and I will have never had the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation. Yeah, sure, man. I had a blast. So thanks. And I think you'll, um, you know, one of the cool things is you were able, we were able to talk about a lot in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, for you to write all this stuff, man, good luck. <laughs> yeah, man. <it's, laughs> I'm about to publish my second one, and it's almost like just more daunting because, I mean, this new one is like 2,500 words, and I still haven't even gotten past the dish pit at the cafe yet. <laughs> Well, when I used to write for, it used to be called About Face Magazine. I don't think it's, it exists any longer. I think the last iteration it was was Portland's Interview Magazine. But when I did an interview with chefs, which I was pretty proud of, I did some pretty cool interviews with Gabe, Vitali, Naomi Pomeroy, not to freak John Gorham, a lot of great chefs, and uh, Jason French, Dolich. I sat down and those hour-long interviews would be 10,000 words wow, when we transcribed them. And then my job was to get it down to 1,500, which then Ugh. you understand why the print media sucks because now I'm in control, right? You don't have to, yeah. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's not about have to, but, you know, if we would have taken your 10,000 words and I would have, from this conversation... And it was my choice what to put in and what not to put in. I could very much make you look. Ah, there's there's not much there to make you look like an asshole. But I had interviews where <laughs> no, I could have left it. No, there. I had interviews where there was stuff where if I just printed that, there's no way anybody would have <laughs> enjoyed these people. Totally. So, and then, so when we started the podcast, I realized, wow, now I don't have to edit. It just comes out. No one can accuse us of editorializing and, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and taking their words out of context. Um, and so there, that's one reason it's, uh, it's a pleasure doing this. So, no, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm really glad Dougie used to post about you a long time time ago and uh, i was like who's this ricky bella guy so um i'm sorry it took so long to get to you but i think it's good you've had what eight nine months under your belt at um at palomar coming up on a year pretty soon yeah yeah in a year so good now we've had a chance to talk about that and your experience there and i think it's cool because this is a an experience you haven't had in your how many years 13 years in the business now 14 I'm 33. I started washing dishes at 17. 17. Okay, 16 years in the business. All right, well, let's check in again before another 16 years goes by and sees see what's happened. I don't think I'm going to be doing this in 16 years, but we'll see. You didn't listen. If I if I'm still in a kitchen with a knife in my hand, <laughs> right. years, I'm going to be very very upset with myself. The both of us. But if you would have, <laughs> I think it'd be interesting to have played this interview for you back in the days when you were washing dishes to hear where you've come, and it's a long way. So congratulations on that, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. We'll uh, yeah, we'll man. be in touch. Peace. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right